Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, welcome everybody to GodPod 78. And uh, for this one, I am joined yet again by... Michael Lloyd. Hello, 78. It's, um, we, are, we have been quite a long playing record, haven't we? Some we would have. say <laughs> too long. stuck record. <laughs> and that in itself betrays our age, I think, the fact that we know what 78 <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, um, Michael, who is not 78, he's a lot younger no. than that. Yes, thank you. And uh, Jane? Who is also a lot younger than that. Who's <laughs> also a lot younger than that, in case I get myself into trouble. Yes, she's a lot she's younger you than just have. <laughs> Yes, if you're even in a hole, stop digging. Which I will. Add myself, Graham Tomlin. So here we are on um, Godpod seventy eight, and we've got a couple of questions to um, um, to have a go at this morning, or this evening, if you're listening to it in the evening, or even the, in the afternoon, if you're listening to it in the afternoon. So the first one is from Melanie. Melanie Douglas. I don't know where Melanie's from, but um, she asks the question about Philippians chapter two, verse five, which is of course the great hymn of St. Paul uh, about Christ. And um, the question relates to this whole idea of kenosis, the sort of emptying, self-emptying of Christ in becoming human. And she says, uh, if I consider some of the attributes of God, I could perhaps grade them as to whether Jesus had them as a man. So, for example, justice, righteousness, love, truthfulness, yes, Jesus still exhibits those qualities as a human being, as he did as the um, as the second person of the Trinity. Uh, but things like omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, um, sovereignty, these things which are qualities of which we think of as divine qualities, which uh, presumably Jesus shared as the um, pre-existent Son of God, and yet on becoming incarnate. Um, assuming human flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, he was not. Well, he certainly wasn't omnipresent. He was located in one particular place. Um, We assume he wasn't omniscient. He does seem to have certain things he doesn't know, like the time of his coming again and so on. Um, uh, So that's the question. Now, the question is, if that's the case, how can he still be considered to be fully God? if he actually divests himself of many of the qualities that we think of are actually divine. So that's the question. Quite an interesting little one. So um, who wants to have a crack at this one first? I think one of the really interesting things that we um, do over and over and over again is we start with an idea of God that we've got from somewhere or other and then apply it to the God of the Bible. Hmm. and I would like to suggest um, as a theological stratagem that we should do it the other way around. So we start with the God of the Bible and get our definition of God from there. Uh, and clearly, you know, the God of the Bible um, can be found everywhere, as his people discover when they're taken off into exile. Mm. They discover they can worship their God in Babylon, not just in Israel, and begin to realize that God can be found everywhere. So all, all those characteristics of God, om, omnipotence, om, omnipresence and so on, are worked out um, from that picture of God in the Bible. But the picture of God in the Bible is primarily about the God who relates to his people. Hmm. And um, and the other characteristics flow from that. He's, his, his people can find him 
anywhere. Um, his people can um, uh, learn from him anywhere. Um, his people can learn everything they need to know about how to live in the world through their relation. So, so that so that you actually translate those abstract qualities of omniscience, mm. omnipresence, and so on in terms of uh, of mm. the God who reveals Himself um, in Jesus, um, and then that begins to turn around how you see what's happening in Jesus. I, I entirely agree with that. I think that's really... Re- so, so you heard it here really? first. Mind <laughs> you, it took 78 God pods <laughs> for it to happen, agree. but it has now. <laughs> I entirely agree with that. And, and particularly my own field of the problem of evil, I think it, it, it's really important. If you start with the word omnipotence, that gives you a whole lot of expectations yeah. that then create problems. The Bible never uses the word omnipotent of God. It talks about God of hosts, mm. uh, God with enormous resources uh, and personal resources at that uh, behind him. And that that shapes the question in a very different kind of way. And I think a much more helpful way. Mm. Um, just so that people don't fear that Jane and I are losing, uh, <laughs> becoming too kind of cozy. <laughs> I, I, wonder, I would be interested to know how, if you start with Jesus, you get with the, to the idea of God being impassable, but perhaps that's taking us off the subject. It, we, but we should definitely do a, several God pods on that alone. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting how we often get slightly embarrassed about the sort of anthropocentric bits or anthropomorphic bits of the Old Testament you know, where God is depicted in slightly embarrassing human terms, you know, that he gets angry and he gets passionate and he sort of addresses people and he he speaks and he, um, you know, he has emotions and, and, and so on. He's presented in that form. And um, and uh, and I suppose the sort of classic theism sometimes gets a bit sort of, you know, think, oh, that's very, very sort of, you know, primeval, rather they didn't really understand God. But then actually when you think of the, you know, if the central miracle of of the, the Bible is the incarnation leading to resurrection, then in a way it's not surprising that the Old Testament God is depicted in very human terms sometimes. Um, that actually if you turn it the other way around, you think, well, actually, if you look at the Old Testament God and you were to think, what would that God look like if he became human? Well, it's pretty close to what you'd see in Jesus. Mm-hmm. That actually the trajectories of the Old testament lead towards that in a way that once you've seen jesus you look back and, oh that makes that makes some sense so the anthropomorphisms of the old testament are not an embarrassment they actually point towards incarnation as an entirely natural thing for god to do and i think the other thing that this says uh, which is which is really quite interesting and quite challenging is that if you start with the person of jesus then things like love and service are absolutely central to who God is. Um, in a way, more central even than things like om- om- omnipotence or whatever. Now, that's not to say that you don't end up with an omnipotent God. I think you do. But we need. We normally think of it the other way around. We normally think of omnipotence and then we try and add the love. Well, actually, the, the love is central. Actually, the washing of people's feet is central. So part of God's omnipotence is that he is always able to be servant. Yes. Um, and he, you know, he has the total power always um, to be available to people uh, in a way that the, the rest of us don't, which is part of God's impassibility, is that he's not acted upon by things outside his character and being. Well, not warped out of shape, certainly. Exactly. And the other thing, of course, that Philippians passage says is that, is that um, 
the thing about Jesus is that he's prepared to take um, his whole definition from his obedience to the Father. So what you see in Jesus is that uh, relationship between Father and Son lived out in our world. You'd see it lived out. And that's how we know that Jesus is God, because unlike the rest of us um, who make God sort of secondary to who we are, for Jesus, God the Father is primary to who he is. It's what completely shapes him. So what, when it says then in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, what then did he empty himself of? I suppose, and, and, and this is a question that theologians have <laughs> pondered all <laughs> down the centuries, and I'm not claiming to have an answer to it, but... I, God lives in unapproachable light. And Jesus is utterly approachable. <laughs> there is a divesting of something there uh, to come among us. There is an, an, an approachability uh, such that you know, in the Old Testament people can, cannot see God and live. Well, here they can. Mm -hmm. Something has changed. Something has been left behind in order to make himself one of us and approachable to us and seeable by us um, and engageable with us. But also you, and again, this is reading into the text and we have to be aware that that's what we're doing all the time. But Philippians doesn't actually tell us what it means no. by that word. But but also there is the sense of, of um, that the Gospels are perfectly clear that Jesus had to learn mm -hmm. his that that relationship that actually forms his whole being was also one that had to be lived in and Learn so the sense of emptying himself of the because presumably in um, in, in the, the 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 life of God Father Son and Holy Spirit the Son doesn't pray to the Father to find out the Father's will. Hmm. Um, you mean eter just, eternally? You eternally, mean, in, in the, their eternal yes, relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, he intercedes with the Father for us. Does he? Not? He intercedes with the Father for us, but he doesn't have to find out what the Father's hmm. will is. Yep. No. Whereas hmm. in as a human being, Jesus has to live and choose to live that relationship every day in the way that the rest of us yes. do. Now, as a matter of fact, he did choose to live that relationship every day, and we don't. But part of that, uh, so I would want to read into that phrase, part of that self-emptying is actually emptying out the complete naturalness and and um, unthought-throughness of that um, relationship, Father, Son, mm. and Holy Spirit. But as mm. I say, I'm reading that into there. Mm. Mm. Um, but it also makes perhaps some of the, some sense of that cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The point at which almost that relationship between father and son the son almost wonders if it is there and that's part of that extraordinary identification mm. that jesus mm. makes with us that yes. he could actually mm. doubt that relationship that is who he is mm. Mm. um but uh, all of this is um making a sort of romantic novel of the life of the trinity in a way that i find <laughs> slightly uncomfortable you should write one <laughs> <laughs> Even more speculation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the great German theologian Jürgen Moltmann does quite a lot of this in, in a way that is both profoundly helpful and profoundly dangerous, I mm, think, mm. encouraging us to speculate about the relationship um, between father and son, um, mm. particularly on, on the cross. And as I say, I've found it both extraordinarily helpful, and I think it's channeled a lot of theology since, um, but also quite dangerous because it is reading beyond what we're actually given. given. Yeah. 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 And there's um, the yes, because it's the language of though he was in the form of God, and 
did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And maybe that's it's talking about, you know, it's taking a different form, isn't it? We don't know what the form of God is. No one has ever seen God. And yet it seems from this that God has a form of some kind. But he then takes the form of a slave, a form of a human being, um, not a particularly exalted one at that. And so it's a it's a transformation, mm. if you can put it that way. It's, it's um, a little bit like <clears throat> transcribing a symphony for a string quartet, isn't it? It, yep. it, it is a different form, yep. um, but it's the same music, it's the same song, it's the same tune, yep. it's the same harmony. Yeah. Um, but in a different scale and in a different mode. Yeah. Well, different. Not mode is the wrong word musically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but um, yes, because that, that would change the music. <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. But also the form that that he takes is the one that we've made of the. I don't know if I could do this in English. Um, that the form into which we are made is the sun. I mean that, yes. that's mm. yes. Um, and so we are the image of the sun, and the sun then becomes mm. the image of us mm. in order to restore that. Yes, image. we were the instrument designed to play this music. Yes, exactly. and this is the music played on this yes. instrument for the first time. Yes, exactly. That's. And a, I, that's and I guess going yeah. going back to the original question, how, how then, if these things are true, can Jesus can be considered to be fully God? And I think if we're going to back strictly to biblical language about God. I think it's back to your point, Mike, that the Bible doesn't tend to use language like omniscience, omnipotence. Mm, yeah. Those sorts of words are not particularly there. Um, but what the Bible does do when it describes God is to use his characteristics of love and grace and kindness and patience and all those things. And those are precisely the qualities that you see in the person of Jesus. Yes, and all that words like omnipotence, which I don't want to let go of, but I think mm. just... Can, it can be they need can to push you in the wrong direction. The they need to be yeah. qualified yeah. by the other ones. Yeah. What, all that they add is to tell you that these are the qualities that are eternal. These are the ones that are going to yeah. win. It's love that's going to win. It's love that is going to prevail, yeah. um, and and not the warped forms of power that we yeah. think. Yes, because omnipotence implies that power is ultimately the the, yes. the, the, the ultimate thing. Yes. It's power that will win out at the end. Yes, whereas actually viewed through the lens of the God of the Bible, it's 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 love that will prevail. Mm. Yes. And omniscience suggests there's a kind of knowledge that's that's abstracted from yep. becoming human in yes. the image of Jesus. And, yep. yes. um, uh, so all of those words are abstract away from yep. um the mm. nature of the God revealed in Jesus. Um but can mm. be, as Mike says, really helpfully reclaimed. Reclaimed yeah. once you've yeah. put the central things at the centre. <laughs> Uh, which this passage from Philippians w- yep. and the Incarnation generally do. That was a really interesting question. It's a very interesting very good question. question. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much, Melanie. And um, we are now moving on to another one, which is from uh, Jerry Livingston. Jerry Livingston, who lives in San Diego, California. Um, he has a very interesting email called Dead Rocks. His email address. Not quite sure what that means, but anyway, um, the, the opposite of living stones, I suppose. <laughs> oh, very good, very good, Michael. Well done. Um, so the question is, uh, how should we view the application of the law in the Old Testament in our New Testament age? I'm certain that Hebrews gives us the lay of the land as far as the ceremonial law is applied today, but I'm interested in your take on the rest of the moral or civil law. Does the Old Testament law apply today? Thoughts? Michael, are you going to start going? 
Mike's always got thoughts. <laughs> always got thoughts. Uh, I mean, I think I think the Hebrews Hebrews is a key place here for thinking through um, ceremonial but law, but not just ceremonial law. There is a sense in which uh, it gives a template for the whole thing that uh, the old covenant was good, but it was imperfect, and that's the template that's given. Um, so when one looks at other bits of the um, Old Testament that that's the model that we have that it's good that we can learn from it we must address it we must understand it we can't understand the New Testament without it uh, but in the light of Jesus we see some of its imperfections now how does that work out I mean with something like the Sabbath law for instance um, you need to see it, you need to read it in the light of, of the example of Jesus. There's that wonderful um, story of the kind of we free minister uh, who's talking about the importance of keeping the Sabbath holy and uh, said how so many people don't. And he said, and even our Lord himself was a little bit woolly on the <laughs> Sabbath. <laughs> uh, well, that suggests that he hasn't quite under got the point. Um, uh, you need to understand it in, in, in the light of who Jesus is. And, and that makes it um, something quite different from perhaps how you would read it if you just had the Old Testament. But I think we, we are, um, as Christians, always in danger of caricaturing how the law operated and operates yes. um, anyway for, for Jewish people. And that's one of the things that's really been hugely um, helpfully rediscovered through um, what's called the new perspective on Paul, hasn't mm. it? Mm. Um, that this uh, opposition that Christians have sort of manufactured between law and grace um, actually isn't a very, doesn't really make sense and it doesn't make sense of how law operates. Mm. Law was a um, form of grace for, exactly. for, for Jewish people. Yes, yeah. exactly, because law forms human people and human communities um, into the character of God. <laughs> um, into the things you know teaches you what god likes the patterns mm. of behavior the patterns of living and so on that mm. that, um, that uh, will make you more uh, open to god mm. and yes and sorry no carry on I mean, the law was never meant to be a means of salvation no which is the point that the new perspective on paul makes actually, incidentally it's actually a paul that point that luther made as well sometimes luther is opposed to the you know presented as being the sort of opposite of the new perspective actually i'm not sure he is entirely and in fact luther would sometimes make the point that that you know we, we were always meant to be saved by grace it's not that you know if we could obey the law perfectly if we were able to you know, every obey every jot and tittle of the law we would somehow be saved as if god was then obliged to save us because we'd obeyed him obeyed, done all this obedience and um, no we were always meant to be saved by by grace uh, law was always given as a guide to yes. the life of the of the redeemed not as a means of salvation as such, which does begin to change the way you think about law as such. Having said all that, though, what then, you know, when we read Old Testament law, how does that work in the present? You know, to what extent does it apply and so on? I mean, I think when once you become a Christian, you you begin to want to st or become a, yeah, you want to start living your life in a way that reflects your new faith, that reflects mm. your understanding of, what kind of a person you're trying to become, what kind of a community you're trying to be part of. And so there are still, we do still say there are certain kinds of behaviours and so on that are ruled out for Christians, don't we? So we do still have um, some oh, sense of... 
some kind of rule or yeah. some kind of law. Yes, yeah. no, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things I've just been reflecting on quite a lot recently is is the church's practice of saying the Gloria at the end of a psalm. Uh, and uh, there's a lot that's going on there, but part of it is is saying, remember that there's an interpretative job to be done here. That as Christians, we can't simply say the psalm without recalling the new revelation of God in Christ, the Trinitarian mm. revelation of God in Christ, upon which we stand. Uh, and that, I think, is really helpful when you come across things like Psalm 137 about happy are those who dash your children their children's heads against the rocks you can't just say that <laughs> once you've seen the love of god in christ you have you have an interpretive job to be done and the gloria reminds us of that now that's we say that with the psalms but it's true of any any passage uh, from the old testament or indeed the bible as a whole that it need you have an interpretive task to be done to read it through the lens of christ um and then it looks different in various ways. Various things are filtered out more and various things are highlighted more as you view them through the lens, uh, this new Trinitarian lens, this Christological lens. Um, well, what, what are the contrasts that sometimes made is that between sort of law and spirit, isn't there? I'm just wondering what the, what the implications are of the coming of the spirit in the sense that, you know, there are passages in the Old Testament um, in Ezekiel, for example, that kind of look forward, or you know, the book of Joel that look forward to the coming of the Spirit. And there is a sense in the New Testament that somehow the, the coming of the Spirit enables an, a, an inner obedience to the law, to the will of God, that is not true without the Spirit. Um, in other words, that perhaps one of the differences between the Old and New Testament, especially after the Acts 2 passage, is that you know, God sends his Spirit into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. He creates this, this new relationship with God through Christ um, by the Spirit so that the law becomes not something over against us, but something that is, that is embedded within us. You know, I will write the law on their hearts, is what the Old Testament says. Um, now, it's not that, you know, every dot and tittle of the law is therefore, you know, we, we don't return to, 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 to Jewish Old Testament law as such. But an important contrast is that sense of the, the spirit evoking in us the desire to obey God's will, which is a new dimension of spiritual reality after Pentecost that wasn't there before. But can equally be abused, can't it? And, and clearly St. Paul was facing people who abused it, who, who, who said, mm. OK, so now we've been forgiven and, we're, and, we, uh, and the spirit has come upon us. Everything we do is fine. Yep. That we, we can can't do what we like. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, yes. uh, shall we then sin that grace may abound? Yes. Yep. Uh, and so, and Paul says, "Well, no, don't be so daft. Um, why would mm. you want to? You're mm. still treating mm. then. You're treating grace as a kind of um, law in the in the sense of a, a get out clause, yep. rather than treating grace and law as things that shape you towards the person mm. Of, mm. of of Christ. Mm. Uh, and so, I suppose." I mean, I, 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 while I sympathise with what you're saying, Graham, I also think that that being human and and being people utterly prone to deceiving ourselves about um, uh, about mm. how we are d being disciples, actually, every so often to have a check back and think, well, how am I displaying um, mm. my love of the alien and the stranger, my mm. my charity towards um, mm. the, uh, the poor in my, mm. I mean, checking against 
you know, some of those assumptions of the law is not a bad Mm -hmm. thing, provided, Mm -hmm. as you say, we're not thinking the law is our salvation. Christ is our salvation. Mm -hmm. But what is our discipline moving us towards Christ? I think think that's very helpful. But the other thing to remember is that there may be new virtues, the importance of which we see in Christ, which were less Mm -hmm. to the fore in the Old Testament. And, And the one I'm thinking of particularly is humility. Humility in the in the pagan world was not a virtue at all. It was seen as servile, you know, obsequiousness. Um, whereas in the person of Christ, because of the incarnation, because of the self-emptying, uh, Philippians two, it becomes a central uh, virtue in the New Testament. Okay, you get a, hints of it in the Old that Moses is uh, said to be meek, the meekest person on, on earth, um, but but it's not to the fore and. Again, when you look at the person of Christ, it gives you a different picture of leadership, of kingship. It, you know, when you see him washing the feet of his disciples, you can't imagine too many of the mm. kings of the Old Testament doing that. Mm. It isn't the focus. Mm. And so this gives you a new vision and a new set of virtues. Um, or self-sacrifice, I guess, is another one. Self-sacrifice is another one. The idea one. that the, the cross is the the kind of emblem of that in the heart of the ministry of yes. Christ. And again, looking back into the Old Testament, you can see signs of that, you can see sort of hints of it, but maybe you it's not... Servant songs of the up. obvious points. Yep. And maybe you're saying that the, the law, I mean, one way of understanding the law is, it, is it's the shape of the redeemed life. And that takes a slightly different form in the Old Testament as it does in the New because of the coming of Christ and because of the coming of the Spirit. But the redeemed life does have a, has a shape to it. It's not shapeless. It's not mm. formless. Yes. yes. It's not like, you know, because of the coming of Christ and the Spirit, now you can do what you want. It has no shape. It has no form. It has no sort of boundaries. Yes, the redeemed life, you know, the life that God wants that is appropriate for people in relationship with God has a defined shape to it. There are things that you say yes to. There are things that you say no to. Um, it has a shape, which is what law is, but that shape, changes over time it changes with the the transition from old to new covenant yes it's not with some continuities and some discontinuities it's not that when the spirit comes you can do what you want it's when the spirit comes you can do what god wants yeah uh, and and then what you want becomes um, what god wants yes but that's, what god a, but that's wants a very long you want. painful yeah. slow yeah. <laughs> process yeah. that won't yeah. be completed yeah. by the time we die yeah. um and doing what god wants the old testament will give you a lot of pointers to what that is, as because Jayden it is was the saying. same God. Because it's the same God, <laughs> uh, and therefore care for the alien and the stranger is, yeah. is yeah. going to be part of it. On the other hand, that is um, put in new perspective, yeah. an important mm. new perspective, by the further revelation of God yeah. in Christ. Yeah, and the ultimate goal is that the, in in and through the Spirit, we come to want what God wants. Yes, therefore we come to be people capable of obeying the law in the kind of ultimate sense of that word which is that the, the the will of god for for human beings and we become people who do that because of the people we've become sorry yeah. that's not yeah. too tautologous mm-hmm. so we are not constantly checking whether we've done it or not because it is be- yeah. we have become those kind of people mm-hmm. and and uh, jane won't appreciate this so i apologize to jane um but there's a test match going on at the moment so here's a cricket analogy um <laughs> Not all anybody else out there who didn't know something about cricket. <laughs> yes, for instance, somebody from California who asked the question. I apologise yeah. for this, but you can get um, b- bowling machines that not b- bowling machines that will bowl balls at a batsman, but ones that will you can harness yourself into and will get you 
to do the right kind of motion mm. as a bowler. So this, and you just do it over or and over and a over baseball again. Or to pitch a baseball, exactly. It's the same us. kind of an okay. analogy. Um, until, and you do it and do it and do it thousands of times, until it becomes mm. so um, ingrained in you, so part of you, that you don't need the harness anymore and you can go out on the pitch mm. and do it. Mm. Now that's slightly what's happening mm. Uh, that's the picture of the law. The law is a harness that gets us into the motion, the right kind of motion. It trains us into be the right sort of people so that with the coming of the Spirit, we actually no longer need the harness. And that doesn't mean that we then get into terrible habits, uh, bowling habits, and do it badly. But ideally, it's become so part of us that we then do it naturally. But the only thing I'd add to that is, is it also needs the desire to get to the end of you like the desire yep. to because the idea of a harness can imply sort of coercion it can mean that you're forced yep. to do it do it this way whereas actually it seems to me that the beginning of it is not it's not law but grace it's not law but spirit it's the spirit who gives us the desire to be like christ to, to, to desire to do the will of god even though there's a principle in it that us that keeps on trying to kind of push us in the other direction and so on so the desire then leads to the to the um the, the patterns of life that we, we begin to to follow which leads towards that natural goodness which is our which is the the goal of god's work in us mm. but if we have to use the cricketing analogy <laughs> then i suppose the reason why you get into that harness is because you long to be able to be yeah, a great exactly. bowler exactly you, exactly. exactly exactly yeah. that's right exactly yeah. thank you jane <laughs> very good yeah jane knows something about cricket after all <laughs> now we've discovered Anyway, I'm not that... saying that I long to be a great bowler <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think for mike and me it's too late for the this stage of our lives that's right Anyway, uh, we have reached the end of GodPod 78. Some very interesting discussions there about kenosis and about law. So, uh, but you can see that we only get into interesting discussions if you send us interesting questions. So yeah. please keep them coming. Indeed. Please do. And, uh, well, we will be back before too long with GodPod 79, nearly on to 80. And, uh, well, thank you to uh, Michael. It's a pleasure. And to Jane. My pleasure. And to the wonderful Keith, who uh, does our kind of technical stuff. Great. He's going to cut that bit out. I know he will. will. And it's goodbye from all of us. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.